Hello, and welcome to Parasensory. This is the Pascagoula Incident, Part 2. They're watching. It's 8 a.m. in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. It's a clear, bright, and beautiful sunny day. Calvin Parker is setting sail off the Washington Street Pier. His destination is the south side of Cat Island, a small island off the coast. This is a favorite fishing spot for Calvin. The year is 1993, nearly 20 years after his abduction in Pascagoula, just 60 miles away. It takes Calvin about 45 minutes to get to his fishing spot. He had with him only his fishing gear, four bottles of water, and a fried bologna sandwich. He planned to fish for a few hours and be back home well before dark. About 30 minutes after arriving at his fishing spot, Calvin remembers looking up and realizing that it was somehow inexplicably nightfall. Calvin became severely confused. He looked down at his watch and it read 2300 hours. 11 p.m. What in the hell just happened? Calvin thought to himself. It wasn't even supposed to be lunchtime, and yet somehow more than 12 hours of time had just mysteriously vanished in a split second. Calvin's mouth was dry, so he reached for one of his bottles of water, but there were none to be found. His fried bologna sandwich was also missing. Maybe I passed out. Calvin thought. After fighting through the utter confusion, Calvin thought about his wife, Waynette. He knows she's got to be worried about him. He begins to set sail back to the boat launch. Since it's so dark and he has no source of light to help guide him, it took Calvin about an hour and a half to get back to the pier. Once he got back to his truck, sure enough, there was a note from Waynette on his windshield. It read, Where are you? I am worried. The drive home took Calvin only about 15 minutes. His wife was still awake when he arrived. She told him that he must have broken down somewhere. Calvin set his wife down on the front porch and told her that his truck did not break down. He then tried to explain to her what happened, but he found this incredibly difficult to do because, well, he didn't know what the hell happened. After a moment of consideration, Waynette asked Calvin if he at least caught any fish. Calvin shook his head no, and said he didn't think so. The next morning, Calvin prepared the house for some company that planned to stop by later. Once his friend arrived, Calvin confided in him about the day before finding it just as difficult to explain to him as it had been with his wife. Calvin's friend was Bill Robertson, a reporter for a local news station. Bill possessed a healthy interest in UFO phenomena and asked to see Calvin's boat. He gave it a good look over, found Calvin's ice chest, and opened it. You must have had a good day fishing, Bill said. Calvin looked down in the ice chest to see that it was full of fish, none of which he remembers catching. With a smile, Bill asked to use Calvin's phone. 
After making a call and talking to someone for a few minutes, he asked if Calvin would come to a UFO conference. Bill wanted Calvin to meet someone he thought could help with figuring out the mystery of his missing time incident. He told Calvin that Waynette could also come and that all their expenses would be paid, under the condition that he would allow this particular person to hypnotize him. Calvin agreed. The conference was in Tampa, Florida, and Bill, Calvin, and Waynette all flew down together. One of the speakers at the conference was a man by the name of Bud Hopkins. Bud Hopkins was an artist, author, and a prominent figure in the UFO community. He is probably best known for his book, Intruders, which popularized the concept of extraterrestrials abducting humans for the purpose of genetic experimentation. Bud had also developed his own hypnosis technique, although he had no formal psychological training. He did spend eight years observing other hypnotherapy professionals working with those who claimed to have been abducted by supposed extraterrestrials and many who claimed to experience missing time incidents similar to Calvin's. Bud would be the one to help Calvin in trying to solve his missing time conundrum. After listening to Bud and other speakers give their talks at the conference, Calvin, Waynette, and Bill all went back to Bud's motel room. This is where the hypnosis would take place. Calvin asked Waynette not to stick around. He didn't want to scare her. So once Waynette went back to her and Calvin's room, Bud began the regression therapy session. Shortly after Calvin was under hypnosis, he began to speak about that clear and sunny morning he went fishing out at Cat Island. He then remembers seeing what he describes as a haze in the sky above him, like some sort of cloud. The cloud was fairly large, but Calvin couldn't recall exactly how big it was. Suddenly, the bottom of this cloud opened up, and Calvin found himself floating up, his back facing the cloud. Calvin realized that the cloud was some sort of craft once he floated inside. As he managed to be aware of his surroundings, he saw what looked like a female approach him. She had big, dark eyes and gray skin. Calvin felt a sense of safety and was not afraid. Unfortunately, this would be all that Calvin could remember about that day during this particular regressive therapy session with Bud Hopkins. But... There were other details revealed about Calvin's past that are beyond incredible. It was disheartening, though, that Calvin couldn't remember anything else about that day he went fishing off Cat Island. Calvin, as well as his friend Bill and Bud, really wanted to know what happened to him during that missing time, especially now since it was revealed that Calvin had yet again been taken aboard an unidentified flying object. Sorrowfully, Two days after they all returned to Mississippi, Calvin's friend Bill, who had introduced him to Bud Hopkins, suddenly passed away. Bill had planned to make a copy of the recording of Calvin's hypnosis session with Bud. 
Now, acquiring that tape seemed impossible. Years later, Calvin lost all of Bud's contact information during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Why Calvin didn't try to contact Bud before the hurricane, I do not know. Years went by. In 2011, Bud Hopkins also passed away, the same year of Charlie Hickson's passing. Only after Bud's passing did Calvin wonder if he'd ever hear the recording that was made during the hypnotherapy session with Bud. As Calvin decided to write a book about his experience 45 years prior, his co-author, Philip Mantle, helped track down the recording. When Calvin listened to the tape, he realized that Bud Hopkins first took him back to the abduction experience on October 11, 1973. During the recording, Calvin hears himself reliving his experience aboard the craft that night. At one point, the recording plays a panicked Calvin speaking about being taken into a room in the room, he describes feeling very afraid and wanting to die. Then, what seemed to be a door opened to the room and Calvin suddenly felt a sense of peace. An entity with female features approaches Calvin. This seems to be the same entity we heard about in part one of this story when Calvin says he saw a thin-faced, small being that seemed more human-like than the creatures that grabbed him and took him aboard the craft. Calvin asks, who are you? The being seemed to respond by aggressively sticking her fingers into Calvin's nose. This in turn made Calvin very angry. Bud Hopkins then asked Calvin, what's going through your mind when you look at her? Calvin responds, I've seen her before. When did you see her before, Bud asks. I just turned six years old. It's November 7th. April, 1974. Charles Hickson meets William Mendez, the man who would eventually become Charlie's co-author for his book written about the incident in October of 73. A couple of months after Charlie and Mendez become acquainted, Mendez attended his first UFO conference. It was at this conference Mendez heard what was then only a rumor about Charlie having subsequent experiences with UFOs since the incident back in 73. As Mendez discussed this with a member of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, the member mentioned that this is what's called the repeater problem. The repeater problem brings about the observation that many people who have had a dramatic UFO experience also claim to have subsequent experiences. This brings about a problem for the UFO investigator, assuming they are trying their best to use reason and logic considering the circumstances. Their rationality would suggest that the probability of the experiencer having additional experiences should be considerably less than someone who is struck by lightning twice. Mendez's initial reaction upon hearing this about Charlie was disbelief. 
He now had second thoughts about writing a book with Charlie. Something that kept Mendez from discrediting Charlie altogether was when he thought back to Calvin's nervous breakdown. He thought maybe Charlie was going crazy, losing his mind. As soon as he returned home from the conference, he called Charlie and immediately asked about the additional UFO sightings he heard about. Are these rumors true, Charlie? Mendez asked. Yes, they're true, but I don't want to talk about it, Charlie said. Mendez reminded Charlie that they are scheduled to write a book together about Charlie's alleged UFO abduction and that it is of the highest pertinence to talk to him about it. Charlie agreed. Charlie also told him there was more than one sighting and that the last sighting was witnessed by his whole family. Mendez couldn't believe it. In August of that year, Mendez made the journey to Mississippi to spend time with Charlie. Charlie gave him a collection of writings. When asked what these writings were, Charlie told Mendez that it was his record of everything that has happened to him since his abduction in October of 73. Mendez read the papers, and this is what they revealed. In January of 1974, Charlie went hunting on a friend's property. Despite a lack of areas to hunt in Gaucher, Mississippi, where Charlie lived, Charlie's friend's property was a 700-acre tree farm that was inhabited by small game. Charlie had his daughter and son-in-law drop him off at one end of the property. His plan was to hunt from one end to the other and be out there for most of the day. Once he got to the other end of the property, he would walk home, which wasn't too far away. Charlie was looking forward to this day. That morning, his daughter and her husband dropped him off as planned. As he traversed the land, he was reminded of being a 21-year-old soldier traversing the terrain of Korea. After a while, Charlie decided to stop at a hillside surrounded by acorn and hickory nut trees. He sat against a tree and ate a sandwich and an orange he had packed with him. It was at this moment he began to realize that he had not seen any movement in the area since he sat down. No birds, no squirrels, no rabbits, nothing. That's when Charlie claims to then see a hovering craft about 25 yards away in a clearing. He says it's the same craft that him and Calvin saw on October 11th, 1973 in Pascagoula. The same craft that three creatures emerged from and carried them aboard. Charlie then says that before he could do anything, it felt like a radio turned on in his head and he heard. We mean you no harm. We mean no one any harm. You may communicate with us later. You have endured. You have been chosen. There is no need for fear. We will communicate again. Charlie claims the radio was turned off and the craft disappeared.
He said he felt a sense of relief and an urge to let people know that these beings meant us no harm. Charlie walked home trying to absorb what had just happened. Initially, he didn't want to tell his wife, Blanche, but she could tell something had happened. She pressed him to tell her, and he did. She cried and seemed very worried for Charlie. In September of 1974, Mendez interviewed Charlie about his tree farm experience. The interview was recorded, and Mendez starts off asking Charlie if it's possible that maybe he dreamed the incident. Charlie says it couldn't have been a dream. Charlie then goes on to describe the craft as looking identical to the one that he and Calvin were taken aboard. He says that the craft did not descend, but rather it was just simply there. Mendez presses Charlie about the incident. He asks Charlie about what was supposedly communicated to him and how there seemed to be a radio that turned on in his mind. Mendez repeatedly asks Charlie what he thinks the message means, that he has endured and that he has been chosen. It seems obvious in the transcript of this interview that Mendez is not convinced by Charlie's story. But Charlie remained vigilant. He tells Mendez with a seemingly genuine tone that he doesn't know what any of it means. He says he can't explain any of it. What Charlie does focus on is the mention of the beings communicating with him at a later time. Charlie then says that the only thing he can think of that might explain the incident is that the beings wanted to provide Charlie with a sense of peace and relief since the abduction back in October had brought on so much stress for him and his family. Mendez asked Charlie again what he thinks being chosen means. When they said, you have been chosen, does that make you feel that, well, there's something special about me? They picked me for this experience. Does you have been chosen mean to you that back in October, that they picked you, that it wasn't just luck, that, well, what I'm getting at, of course, is if someone says that to me, you have been chosen, it makes me feel like, well, they picked me as opposed to someone else. I have been chosen. At least, that's the way to look at it. There's something special about me. Charlie becomes upset and seemingly frustrated. He says that, in one sense, it does feel that maybe it just meant he was chosen to be abducted back in October, but that, in another sense, he feels that what they meant by telling him he was chosen means that he's supposed to do something else. Which I don't know what that is, Charlie says. Mendez dropped the subject of the message as he could see Charlie was getting exasperated. Mendez then asked about the disappearance of the craft. It seemed to just disappear, Charlie said. There was no sound. Mendez told Charlie that saying that the craft just disappeared is going to cause some people to believe that he was just hallucinating. Well, all I can say is it was real to me. Mendez concluded his interview by asking Charlie why he didn't report what happened after he got home from hunting. Charlie basically said that nothing was ever done about his and Calvin's abduction back in October and that he doubts anything could be done about the incident at the tree farm. So why the hell report this? He said. Mendez doubted Charlie's story, but he did not doubt that Charlie believed in what he claimed he saw. 
Mendez believed Charlie's experience was due to stress. We must remember that the alleged abduction occurred roughly only two months before this sighting. Mendez anticipated hypnotic regression therapy sessions with John Krause to see if Charlie was one, telling the truth, or two, if there were other details Charlie either didn't remember or wasn't telling him. If you remember, in part one of this series, Charlie and Calvin were put under hypnosis by Krauss in February of 1976. That particular session mainly focused on the abduction that occurred in October, almost three years prior. Later on, in April of 1976, Krauss had another regressive therapy session with Charlie. Once Charlie was induced and under hypnosis, Krauss began to ask him about his experience at the tree farm. Charlie describes sitting down and eating his sandwich in orange, just as his own personal transcript describes. He then asks about the craft. It's real quiet. I see something out in front of me, in the opening. I can't see all of it, I just see something in the opening out there. He goes on saying, Some kind of... That's the same thing me and Calvin seen, I believe. I'm scared. I'm by myself. I got a strange feeling. Who's that? Something like, uh, something just told me, or I had a thought, or something. Something coming to my mind I didn't put there. I don't know, I can't understand it. It's clear that Charlie is reliving the experience as he did before with his other regressive therapy sessions. It's also clear that Charlie definitely experienced something and could not explain it as it was happening. Notice that when Charlie wrote all this down, he said it felt like a radio turned on in his head. But during the regressive session, as he was reliving the experience, he doesn't know how to describe what is happening. I mean, listen to this quote. Who's that? Something like, something just told me or I had a thought or something. Something came into my mind I didn't put there. I don't know. I can't understand it. This is clearly the ramblings of someone who doesn't know what the hell is going on. But something is going on. Mendez asked Charlie what is being said in his head, and can he understand it? Charlie replies, It just come into my mind. Don't be afraid. We mean you no harm. Is that all? Is there any more? Mendez asked. We will return, Charlie said. Charlie then says that he begins to feel a very strange feeling, like there was something all around him, close to him. He felt afraid and did not like the fact that he was all alone in the tree farm. This is why he stopped hunting and went straight home. There are a couple of discrepancies in Charlie's conscious testimony with what was said under hypnosis. First, Charlie mentioned feeling instant relief when he heard the message in his head. Yet under hypnosis, he describes a sense of fear and paranoia. Second was the message. Charlie's waking testimony of the message was, We mean you no harm. We mean no one any harm. You may communicate with us later. You have endured. You have been chosen. There is no need for fear. We will communicate again. 
Under hypnosis, there is no mention of communicating with Charlie at a later date. No mention of him enduring anything or being chosen. There was a mention of a return, but no promise of communication. An interesting fact to mention here is that this message is eerily similar to another message Charlie claimed to receive on the night of his abduction in 1973. Charlie says that once him and Calvin were taken off the ship and put back on the riverbank, a message came into his mind that said, We are peaceful. We meant you no harm. Charlie never mentioned this message until he started writing about his abduction between May and July of 1974. Charlie was asked why he didn't report this message to the Sheriff's Department or Keesler Air Force Base after the abduction, and his answer was basically that he didn't understand exactly what had happened, and he had just experienced something terrifying, so he didn't say anything about it. Let's move on to Charlie's other experiences. You will soon realize that the alleged tree farm incident is only the beginning. Let's remember that the tree farm incident took place in January of 1974. The following month, February, Charlie claims he was awakened one night by a barking dog outside his apartment. Charlie decided to go outside and check on this dog. Once he found it, the dog ran away into the woods. At this instant, Charlie claims the radio was turned on in his head again, and he received a message that said, You must tell the world we mean no harm. Your world needs help. We will help in the future before it's too late. You are not prepared to understand yet. We will return again soon. As the message ended, the radio in Charlie's mind was turned off. There was no sign of the craft, no creatures to be seen, nothing out of the ordinary to be sighted. Charlie went under hypnosis again and was regressed to when he received this message in February of 1974. But he did not reveal the entirety of the message he received. While under hypnosis, Charlie was asked if there was more to the message but all Charlie could say was, I can't, I can't. After he's taken out from under hypnosis, Charlie says that when he's pressed about the full content of the message, he feels like something tells him not to talk about it. Now, if you don't believe Charlie's claims of these subsequent experiences, the circumstances of his next incident may eclipse your doubts. In each message Charlie claims to have received, he is told of a return. According to five other witnesses, this promise was fulfilled on Mother's Day, May 12, 1974. But we'll get to that later. We are now back in 1993. Bud Hopkins still has Calvin under hypnosis and continues to probe him about what happened on October 11th, 1973. If you remember, 
Calvin mentioned the female-featured being that entered the room Calvin was being held in in the craft. Although he felt peace when she entered, Calvin reveals that she shoves her fingers into his nostrils, and this makes Calvin very angry. At this point, Bud asks Calvin, What's going on through your mind when you look at her? Calvin responds, I've seen her before. When did you see her before? Bud asks. I just turned six years old. It's November 7th. I'm in bed with my brother. I sleep with my brother now because we've got a small house and he's sad about wetting the bed and I, I usually sleep on the floor. But he was just over 12 years old, so he had wet the bed and I had got up and laid on the floor with a blanket and I seen her. Calvin continues, I've been knowing her for a long time and she's evil and I'm very afraid of her. Do you only see her in the bedroom or do you see her other places? Bud asks. No, lots of other places, Calvin says. Bud asks Calvin if there is a nice place that he's seen her. On Pearl River, fishing one night with Charlie Hickson. My father, my brother, and I ran out of the woods, and I'd seen her. I come running out of the woods, and I told them there was a ghost in the woods. No one believed me. They all laughed about it. At this point, Bud brings Calvin back to the night of the abduction. He asks Calvin what the being does after putting her fingers up his nose. Calvin begins stuttering off incomplete sentences. His voice is tense. He seems to be reliving the experience. He speaks about the being sticking her fingers way down his nose, then pulling his lip up, feeling a stinging sensation. He remembers not being able to catch his breath, bleeding from his lip and his nose, and starting to pray. He then says that the being grabs him by the side of the face and that all he could think about at that moment was how much he wanted to kill her. He believed that he would die here. Then suddenly, the situation settled down and he decided to calm his nerves. I'm going to stop right here. I want to make it clear right now that I won't go into much more detail about this particular hypnosis session Calvin had with Bud Hopkins. Not because it's not important, but because as you can see there are many revelations being brought out here. I'm not going to go into much more about it because from reading all the transcripts of all of Calvin's hypnotic regression therapy sessions he's had in his life, it seems that at this point in the Bud Hopkins transcript there is either an error or Calvin merges the memories of his abduction in 1973 with his memories of the abduction in 1993. It seems that right now in the transcript, Calvin is talking about his experience in 1993 during his missing time. So keep that in mind. I want to mention a few more details from this transcript, and then I'm done with it. But... Calvin does have another regression therapy session in his life that clears everything up. I will go over this later in the episode. For now, let's get back to the Bud Hopkins transcript. 
So Bud asks Calvin if there's anything else he may notice, and Calvin reveals that he notices that his hand is bleeding. The being seemingly had cut the outside of his hand, and it was bleeding bad. Calvin became livid once again. He continues to describe how the being keeps cutting on his hand and inserts something that resembles a needle. He says the bleeding becomes serious. And then, it's like a miracle. It just quit bleeding and it's healed, Calvin says. But there's some object definitely still in there. It's in my hand. Calvin then describes the being pulling on his feet and feeling pain in his left foot. She then tries to take Calvin's clothes off, and as much as he resists, his body complies and moves to help her. I'm in total agreement with everything she's doing now, Calvin says. Calvin then describes his pants being pulled down and the being looking up at him. They are both just staring at each other. Suddenly, Calvin says he feels a burning sensation all over his body. It feels like the blood was pumped out of me, Calvin says. Under hypnosis, Calvin is writhing with pain. Bud calms him down and reminds him that everything is okay. Once Calvin is calm, Bud asks him what he thought happened. She injected me with something, Calvin says in the side of my hand. Bud asked him if he specifically felt something going in his hand. Oh yeah, it was going in, and then I felt my blood coming out, warm blood. I feel like she's changed all my blood out of my veins. I've never felt anything that hot in all my life, Calvin tells him. Calvin tells Bud he felt the sensation all over his body. Even the bottom of my fingers felt like they just exploded. Calvin explained. He says the being leaves him and he is now able to move freely. Calvin retrieves his shoes and pulls his pants back up. Bud then asks Calvin to look around the room. Bud specifically asks Calvin if he sees any writing on the walls or anywhere. This again is a great example of a leading question, but Calvin rejects it and corrects Bud. Ain't writing, no writing. Calvin says. Although there is much more to observe in this transcript, I want to stop here. Most everything that I won't go over in this session is actually revealed in another hypnosis session where the timeline of events are crystal clear. But just to sum up everything we know so far, in 1993, Calvin was apparently taken again aboard some kind of craft seemingly hidden in a cloud. Inside the craft, he sees a female being that he says is the same female being he saw when abducted in 1973. It is revealed that he had also seen this female being when he was six years old and another time as a young boy when his family was fishing with Charlie Hickson actually present. Now, let's find out what happened to Charlie and his family on Mother's Day in 1974.
All the information and details you are about to hear come directly from Charlie Hickson's written account about the Mother's Day incident. Charlie and a good portion of his immediate family traveled from Gaucher to Sandersville, Mississippi to spend Mother's Day with Charlie's parents. Accompanying Charlie was his daughter, her husband, and their baby. Charlie's son-in-law's brother also came along. Charlie's wife Blanche, their 12-year-old son, and one-year-old daughter were all present as well. Charlie's brothers also came to the house. Once everyone was at Charlie's parents, there were four generations present at the Hickson homestead. The day passed as a typical visit. It was very pleasant, according to Charlie, spending time with his big family. Charlie says that it's always a joy to go back to the farm he grew up on. After everyone made their visits, got caught up, shared their memories, and cleared their plates of good home cooking done by Charlie's mother, it was time for the day to come to an end. It was getting late and Charlie's family began to load up to head back to Gaucher. Charlie and his family said their farewells and headed home. No one could have predicted what was about to happen on that trip. I want to make it clear here who all is present in Charlie's car. Charlie's daughter is named Sheila. Sheila's husband is Kenny. Kenny is driving the car. Kenny, Sheila, their baby, and Kenny's younger brother, Ernest, sat in the front of the vehicle, while Charlie, Blanche, their one-year-old daughter, Trisha, and their 12-year-old son, Kurt, sat in the back of the vehicle. With the exception of the babies, we have Kenny, Sheila, Ernest, Charlie, Blanche, and Kurt, who are all about to become witnesses of something extraordinary. For the South Mississippi natives who may be listening to this episode, the family took I-59 out of Hattiesburg, took Highway 49 to Socher, and then got on Highway 67 to cut across to Ocean Springs. Then they planned to take Highway 90 the rest of the way home. But something would interrupt their journey once they were on Highway 67. Kenny drove slow because Highway 67 is very curvy. About halfway to Ocean Springs, Charlie noticed a large light out of the back left passenger side window. The light was moving. The light was following them. And the light was getting closer. Before Charlie said anything about it, his daughter Sheila noticed it. She got Ernest's attention and pointed it out to him as well. As Charlie called Blanche's attention to it, he noticed his son Kurt was also looking at it. The light came closer and closer until it was parallel to the car. Kenny couldn't help but to notice it at this point. And suddenly, the light shot ahead and got in front of the car. Charlie yelled for Kenny to stop. The light, which was now obviously some sort of flying craft, descended down in front of the car about a hundred yards away. Charlie's wife, Blanche, is screaming hysterically. As a result, his baby starts to cry. The craft then moves across the highway 
and settles down about a hundred yards away from the right side of the car. It's hovering above the ground, right at the top of the trees. It's brightly lighting up the entire area around it. Charlie says the craft was very large, about a hundred feet across, and it had a row of windows completely across it. Charlie is struggling to get out of the car, but Blanche, still screaming and crying, won't let go of him. I must go! The beings are on board and I must meet them! Charlie shouts. His daughter Sheila pleads with him not to get out of the car. As Charlie struggles to release himself from his hysterical wife's grip, he thinks about how he's been waiting for this moment. He thinks about how he's been waiting for this moment, for the beings to return to make contact and communicate with him. Suddenly, the radio is turned on in Charlie's mind. Go. There will be another time, another place, Charlie hears in his head. The radio was then turned off, and Kenny sped away. Charlie could only conclude that the beings told him to go because they were being considerate of how terrified his family was. In his own words, Charlie says, I would have been willing to have given my right arm that night to have walked aboard that craft and met those beings and communicated with them. Kenny suggested that they call Keesler Air Force Base about the incident, but Charlie said no, that they had been through all that before and it was a waste of time. The family made it back home. Everyone, especially Blanche, was still in shock from the incident. Charlie wondered if he would ever see the craft or the beings again. Would they make good on their message? Another time, another place. Is there a special duty they have chosen Charlie to carry out? Unfortunately, this would be the last incident with the UFOs Charlie claims to have. Charlie's co-author, William Mendez, once he heard about the Mother's Day incident, he traveled to Mississippi. It was August of 1974. He taped individual interviews with every witness in the car that night. They all told the same story. This is Charlie's son-in-law, Kenny's account of what happened in his own words. Well, it's dark, it's nighttime, and we're coming home. They noticed something up in the sky. I couldn't see it because it was behind me at first. I was doing about 50, 55. Then it got on the other side of the field on my right, and we looked, and it stopped, and he asked me to stop, so we stopped. Blanche was screaming, go on, go on. We just sat there looking at it. What got to my surprise, it was one big light at first. Then it just got four or five little lights on it, and up underneath it, one big white light. The shape was like an oval, kind of like a football. When it stopped, I turned the car off to see if we could hear anything. Figured it may have been a helicopter or something out there, but we didn't hear no noise whatsoever. Charlie was gonna get out, but Blanche didn't want him to. She was screaming. Mendez asked Kenny if the lights were like the taillights on a car. No, they weren't like headlights on a car or taillights. It was just like a window with lights shining out. Mendez asked if they could have been windows. To my belief, they were, 
Kenny said. Mendez then asked Kenny if he saw the craft go away as he drove away. No, I didn't see it go away. The last time I saw it, it was still sitting there. I was doing from 90 to 95 when I left, you know, that's about how scared, you know, I was getting kind of nervous. Kenny goes on to say that his biggest concern was for the two babies in the car. He said that if it weren't for the babies in the car, he probably would have stayed. He also said that he had never seen Blanche so terrified. Mendez says that Kenny is not among the gullible, that he saw something that night. Something with a row of illuminated windows silently hovering no more than a few hundred yards away. And even Kenny finds it hard to believe that he may have been looking at a craft from another world. Mendez states that for him to personally believe in something, it does not require faith. But rather, for Mendez, it's cumulative evidence that will not allow him to not believe. That's what allows him to believe in something. He says his mind tells him that the Mother's Day incident isn't true, but that the testimony of witnesses suggests otherwise. Next, Mendez interviews Blanche. She was initially very hesitant to talk about it because it does not help her already bad nerves. During the interview, Blanche says that she watched the light come up to the side of the car, then get ahead of the car, and as it was coming down to the highway in front of them, she closed her eyes. When it got to where it was fixing to land, well, that was the last I seen. She couldn't bring herself to look at it. She explained that Charlie tried to calm her down and she began to cry. She then says, I saw it coming from the side one time and that's when I got excited, see? It got faster. It did move fast, it sure did. When we thought it was landing in front of us, that was all I knew about it. This is when Blanche refused to watch anymore because she had become too frightened. It was too much for her. Mendez states that it would only be natural for Blanche to go into a state of hysteria. Because here you have what might be a spacecraft flown by creatures who kidnapped your husband just seven months ago, possibly coming for him again, and possibly putting the rest of your family in danger. Why wouldn't Blanche freak out? Blanche did admit that she could not bring herself to look at the ship when it hovered to the right side of the vehicle. The last time she saw it was when it hovered in front of the car above the highway. When Mendez interviewed Sheila, it was clear that her curiosity was overpowered by her fear as she watched the craft. Sheila described it as big and also described the row of illuminated windows going all the way across it. Her description of how and where the ship moved was identical to Kenny and Charlie's recollections. She admits that after watching it for a while, she did become very fearful and joined her mother in begging Charlie not to get out of the car. She says that when Kenny finally sped away, she felt relieved. Mendez also interviewed Charlie's 12-year-old son, Kurt, and his recollection of what the craft did, what it looked like, and just what happened in general was almost identical to everyone else's account, with the exception of mentioning the row of windows. This was the same with Ernest, 
Kenny's younger brother, who was in the front seat. His account was the same as everyone else's, but also with the exception of the row of windows. You must understand, too, that each witness was interviewed separately. No one was in the same room as others gave their accounts. Blanche didn't even agree to be interviewed until three months after it happened. So, even with all these interviews and accounts, Mendez still wanted more clarification. He thought that since Charlie's past hypnosis sessions had been so successful, why not have a session to probe what happened on Mother's Day? Well, finally, in April of 1976, two years after the Mother's Day incident, Charlie was finally hypnotized by John Krause at the Krause Hypnosis Center. Mendez predicted that this hypnosis session would be different than the sessions Charlie had in the past, and it was, but not in the way Mendez suspected. The following information and details come from a transcript of Krause's regression therapy session with Charlie about the Mother's Day incident. Charlie, under hypnosis, mentions feeling good and having a great day at his parents' house with his family. He is reliving the drive home that night. Charlie then mentions seeing something in the sky that he thought might be an airplane or a bright star. But then Charlie says, I I don't believe it's a star, because it's moving. It's getting brighter. I showed Sheila. Blanche is scared. It's just a big light now. Kraus asks where the light is. It's on the left side, Charlie says. It's moving real fast. I see it now. It's some kind of ship. Mendez asks Charlie how he knows it's a ship. I see it. I see it, Charlie shouts. It's real long. It's got windows. It's got a row of windows in it. It's coming. It's coming right in front of us. Kenny, stop. Blanche is having a fit. She woke up the baby. Mendez tries to steer Charlie's focus back to the ship. I I see it. It's in front of us. It's trying to come down to the highway. No, 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 it raises back up. It's moving to the right. At this point, Charlie shouts. Don't hold me, Blanche! Charlie struggles to get out of his chair. I want to go see. I want to go see what it is. It's big. It's coming down to the ground. Oh, it's huge. I got to see where I can see it better. They won't let me. They won't let me. Charlie calms down a little. They won't let me. For a moment, Charlie is quiet, and then he shouts, No, Kenny! Krause asks what is happening. Kenny is driving the car real fast. I can still see it from the back window. It's down close to the ground. Oh, my God. It's got the whole place lit up. I can't see it now. Krause asks about Blanche. She's screaming. She's crying. The baby's crying. It is here that Charlie lets out a big, defeated moan. Kenny's wanting to stop and call the Air Force or somebody. Uh-uh, Charlie says. Krause then allowed Charlie to relax at this point as everything seemed to be getting very emotional. It wasn't long after that until Charlie was brought out from under hypnosis. Krause asked Charlie about the size of the ship. Charlie completely ignored the question and said, I don't want to see Blanche and the baby crying like that no more. 
Krauss assured him that he wouldn't have to relive the experience again. Krauss and Mendez did not work with Charlie for the rest of the day. The session was over. The next day, Mendez and Charlie had another appointment with Krauss. Charlie was scheduled to be put under hypnosis again, but both Krauss and Mendez could clearly tell that Charlie was uncomfortable. He seemed very somber. He admitted to being fearful of going under hypnosis again. When asked if he wanted to reschedule, he didn't hesitate to say yes. Mendez wondered why the Mother's Day regression had been so traumatic for Charlie. Then he thought back to what Charlie said the day before. I don't want to see Blanche and the baby crying like that no more. Mendez figured that a great deal of personal pain could be endured by an individual, but an individual watching their family suffer may be too much to bear. Charlie did agree to go under hypnosis about a month later, though, for the sole purpose of getting a clear description of the Mother's Day ship. Charlie described the ship as much larger than the one they had seen in October of 1973. There was a bulge on the bottom rather than the top. There was a row of hexagonal-shaped windows that went along the entire width of the craft. It was also silent, although if the ship was making any noise, it might have been hard to hear seeing as it was a few hundred yards away and Blanche was screaming and crying at the time. This was all that was taken from this particular regression therapy session. In summary, Charlie, along with his family, witnessed a large UFO that flew close to the left side of their vehicle, flew ahead of their vehicle, at which point Kenny stops the vehicle. Then the UFO then hovers in front of the car, then crosses the highway and hovers above a field on the right side of the car. Charlie tries to get out, but a screaming, crying Blanche won't let him. And then Charlie claims to receive a message. Go. There will be another time, another place. Although I think it's important to point out here that there was no mention of this message while Charlie was under hypnosis. Now, let's catch back up with Calvin. We last left off with the Bud Hopkins hypnosis session. Since the transcript was quite a bit confusing, I decided not to go into too much detail with that session. Rather, I'd like us to fast forward quite a bit to September of 2019, the last time Calvin was put under hypnosis. In early September 2019, Calvin met a lady by the name of Kathleen Marden at the International UFO Congress in Phoenix, Arizona. She is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. If you don't know the story of Betty and Barney Hill, I highly advise you to look it up. Kathleen has a BA in social work and she is a master level practitioner of the quantum healing hypnosis technique. At the moment, she is still MUFON's Director of Experiencer Research and is on the board of directors of the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters, also known as FREE. She has written and published several books and has been prominently involved in several research studies and projects involving UFO witnesses and abductees. 
Calvin and his wife got along with Kathleen almost right away. A few days after the Congress, Kathleen offered to do a hypnotic regressive therapy session with Calvin. He did not turn down the opportunity. Calvin still felt he was missing important pieces to the events that happened to him and Charlie. He still wanted answers, and Kathleen was more than qualified to help him get those answers. Kathleen flew down to Pascagoula, Mississippi, and on September 14th, she performed a hypnotic regressive therapy session with Calvin right there in the comfort of his own home. Kathleen wrote a statement after the session. She informs the reader that she used a forensic hypnosis technique that restricts the use of leading questions or making comments that might be absorbed by the hypnotic subject. Kathleen goes on to say that she read Calvin's book, as well as Charlie's, which left her with many questions involving their abduction in 1973. Through hypnosis, Kathleen said her goal was to search for clarification, more detailed information, and the possibility that Calvin had been taken more than once. In the following, I will interpret and give the highlights of this regressive therapy session. Kathleen induces Calvin under hypnosis. She takes him back to when he was nine years old, 1963, one of the first times he remembers seeing the female being. Kathleen asks where he is. We are in Sandersville, Mississippi, Calvin says. Kathleen asks him to describe his day. Calvin speaks about playing with his brother. And at one point, they look out their bedroom window and see a gray snake eating a large frog. Calvin then mentions that suddenly he catches a glimpse of somebody walking along the fence line. And I know I've seen her before and never thought nothing about it. Calvin is most likely referring to the time he told Bud Hopkins under hypnosis when he saw this being, when he just turned six years old. Calvin goes on, This time it was different. She looked different. When she turned around and looked, she didn't have a face this time. It was like looking at nothing, but she did have a body. Kathleen asked Calvin if he couldn't see a face because he was far away or did she just not have an actual face. She just didn't have a face, Calvin said. Kathleen asked Calvin to describe her appearance. Just kind of a, a tall lady that was uh, didn't have a dress on but had pants, like jeans, and a shirt on, and she just kind of stared at us. Calvin also says that she was wearing a blue shirt, blue pants, and a blue scarf around her head. Then Calvin says the being just walks off into the woods and disappears. Kathleen asks what happens next, and Calvin explains that he and his brother go inside to eat supper. After they eat, their mother makes them go to bed. So it was my night to sleep on the bed, and my brother was sleeping on the floor. After we went to sleep, I heard him holler, There's a ghost blowing in your ear! Well, it scared me a little bit, but I didn't think much of it. I got up and I comforted him because it did scare him. Calvin claims under hypnosis here that he did not see anybody, but that his ear was wet. Kathleen then has Calvin leave this point in time and tell her about the very first time he remembers seeing this female being. 
The first time I seen her, we were fishing. We went to Pearl River with some friends, and she was in the woods, and she tried to get me to come over, and I didn't see her face or nothing real good then, but she motioned for me to come there. And a friend of ours was calling his kids and all, and we went over, so I didn't go there. The friend Calvin is referring to here is Charlie Hickson. Calvin says he was about 12 or 13 years old that day. So let's pause here. Calvin just told Kathleen earlier about seeing this female being by their fence while looking out the window when he was nine. And he told Bud Hopkins about seeing her when he had just turned six. So why is Calvin saying that the first time he saw this being was when his family was fishing on Pearl River when he was 12 years old? Here's my personal takeaway and conclusion. Kathleen did not ask Calvin to take her to the first time he had seen the female being. She asked Calvin to take her back to the first time he remembers seeing the female being. My take is that Calvin has absolutely no conscious memory of seeing the being when he was six and nine years old. I can only guess that those memories are buried in his subconscious and can only be brought out by regressive hypnotherapy. As far as seeing the being when he was around 12 or 13, I believe that there is a part of Calvin's waking conscious memory that still remembers this sighting. Therefore, Calvin told Kathleen about the first time he remembers seeing the being. Now, moving on. Kathleen asked Calvin about more details of that particular day. They come to the revelation that it was on a Saturday in October, close to Halloween. Kathleen then brings up the female being again and asks Calvin to describe her. She had blonde hair and a real attractive smile, and that's about all I know about her. Calvin couldn't explain much else about her because he only focused on her smile. He said it was relaxing. He then explains that Charlie called for him to come eat, and that's when the being ran off into the woods. After a few more questions from Kathleen, she determined nothing else unusual happened that day. Now Kathleen wanted Calvin to take her to the next time he saw this female being. She asked Calvin when was the next time in his life that he saw her. This was 1973, Calvin said. Thursday, October 11th, 1973, Pascagoula, Mississippi. Under hypnosis, Calvin describes details of that day before the abduction. He talks about being at work, things he did at work, Charlie asking to go fishing. Then he talks about being on the riverbank fishing. Then Calvin describes sighting the craft. I noticed some lights across the water. Uh, They were blue lights reflecting, and I figured we were going to jail. So I stood up and turned around, and I guess Charlie noticed them at the same time I did. And he turned around too, and all of a sudden there was a bright light come on us. Way bright. Almost blinding. It was blinding. Kathleen asked what happened next. It was, uh, you could make three figures out. It looked like they were just flying over the top of the grass, effortlessly coming toward us. I noticed one come toward me, and two went toward Charlie. And one got a hold of myself, and I'd never seen the other two again with Charlie until we got back. 
Kathleen then asked Calvin to describe the creature that grabbed him. I never seen nothing like it before. It was gray, a gray looking color. Didn't look like it had any head or neck at all, and I couldn't make out no facial features. It had long arms and like mittens for hands. Its legs were together and it didn't have no separation of its legs. It looked like to me that it didn't have any legs, no neck, just a rounded off head. Kathleen asked Calvin what happened next. This thing grabbed me by the left arm and uh, I felt a stinging just in my left arm up towards my shoulder. If you remember, this is precisely the spot Charlie remembers bleeding from on his arm. Calvin continues, And then I just got real relaxed and didn't really care what happened. And I started going towards the craft and I don't know how I went toward it. I didn't have any sensations or feelings or nothing at this moment. But I can see it coming toward me or I was going toward it. And then it just stopped at the door. Calvin described to Kathleen that he was not walking. He was floating. He could see that he remained upright and floated over the top of the grass. Kathleen asked what he sees at the opening of the craft. Lights. All kind of lights coming from everywhere. These lights are bright. It's just hard to describe them. No color. Just bright lights. Calvin admits that he can't give a description of what exactly the craft looks like because the lights are so bright. But he does say that he could tell that it was a gray color and about ten times bigger than his car. Kathleen then asks Calvin to go on describing his experience. This thing takes us inside. Uh, he makes a turn and we go down a long, a uh, pretty long hallway. I'd say a 10, 15 foot hallway. It's wide. Wider than it is tall. No light pictures, but the lights are there so you can see. We're going down the hallway and he just stops all of a sudden and he turns me to the side along with him. And then there's a door that just opens up. It don't swing open, it just slides back into place, I guess. He carried me into this room and there was a beautiful bed there, or a bench, or I don't know what it was. It was like glass, but it wasn't glass. It was clear, like crystal, that you could see through. And it looked uncomfortable, but he laid me on it and it was comfortable, like laying on air. Kathleen asked what happened next. I couldn't move. I was laying there. I was paralyzed. I was looking up because I couldn't look any other way. And something came out of the ceiling. It's metallic blue, just a square. And it just comes straight down and stops in front of my eyes. And it starts circling my head and making a clicking noise. And then it stopped again and went back up in the ceiling. Kathleen asked Calvin to keep going. This, this thing that had me backed up to the wall and stood there. Just didn't move or nothing. Just looked like he was placed there. Kathleen asked if he could see the creature any better and Calvin told her he couldn't really move. He did say, however, that he managed to turn his head to the side because something was coming toward him. When Kathleen asked what it was, Calvin says, It looked like a woman just a regular person coming towards me. Kathleen pressed Calvin for more details. This lady had brown eyes and 
I didn't notice no hair right then or any. She had long fingers. She was thin, looked undernourished, had a nose, eyes, mouth. Her lips were thin, ears. I didn't notice any clothing, if she had any on. Kathleen asked if she looked human in any way. Calvin told her that yes, she did. He continues to describe the female's skin as pale. And after Kathleen instructs him to look at the top of her head, he does describe seeing hair, blue hair, but says that the blue color of her hair might be because of the bluish lights in the room. He says that her hair is cut very short. Kathleen then asked what happens next. She's wanting to rub my cheek, and I noticed her fingers are longer. She rubs my cheek, and then she puts her hand on my chin. And then she starts pushing down real hard on my chin. My mouth opens. And she runs her fingers down my throat and I'm choking. I'm starting to choke real bad and then she quits. Kathleen asks if Calvin has seen this woman before. I've seen her before, yeah. She's the same one on the Pearl River, except older. But I guess we all grow older. Kathleen tells Calvin to continue describing his experience. She pulled her fingers out of my throat and backed up. My nose is starting to bleed and, and I was choking. So she backed up and kind of left me alone for a second and told me she wasn't going to hurt me. Calvin did not believe her. After a few moments, Calvin says that the female being mumbles. I've never heard a sound like it, but she kind of made a little mumble from the bottom of her throat and it woke up the other thing that was over there standing and not moving. And he come forward and grabbed me by the arm again. And that's when I felt the sharp pain again, but then I felt relaxed. She backed up by the way, and he carried me back out to where he found me, back on the riverbank. Kathleen asked if anything else occurred on the ship, and Calvin assured her that nothing else did. He says that he was placed back on the riverbank. He heard Charlie asking if he was okay. Then they both watched the ship disappear. Kathleen asked what Calvin and Charlie said to each other now that they were back on the riverbank. Calvin said, Charlie, I don't want to tell nobody about this. This never happened. Charlie said, yeah, we're going to tell somebody. We got to. I said, no. So we just left and went back to the car then. Calvin then describes the broken windows on his car. He also says that the car seemed to be acting like a magnet. For instance, his belt was sticking to the side of the car and he had to pull to get it off. He also describes how the car wouldn't start at first. All this seems consistent with the report they made at the Jackson County Sheriff's Office. He talks about Charlie calling Keesler Air Force Base and how they told him to call the police. He tells Kathleen about how after they called the police, they told them to wait there and that they would come get him. Then speaks about driving to the police station after performing a field sobriety test. He talks about how Charlie does most of the talking at the police station, and that after talking to the police for a while, they were free to go home. Calvin says he got back to the apartment, took a bath, and threw his clothes away because they smelt like ammonia. Kathleen asks if Calvin notices anything unusual after he got home. Calvin said his arm and his hand were aching and his throat was itchy and scratchy. Surprisingly, there was no blood residue Calvin could find anywhere from his nosebleed. And that was pretty much it for what happened to Calvin on the night of October 11th, 1973.
What we can surmise is that Calvin was greeted yet again by this female being who has supposedly been keeping an eye on him for most his life at this point. Kathleen now wanted Calvin to take her to the next time he saw this lady. I'm on an island, and I'm getting ready to fish, but I was hungry, so I got my lunch out to eat. Calvin tells Kathleen that it's a Tuesday in the middle of March, 1993. She asked him to continue. I looked up, and I could see it was invisible what I was looking at, but it was a cloud, and there was something in it that was pulling me up. And I went to the bottom of something, and I just sat there suspended for a second, and this, uh, female came out that I had been seeing. I've seen her before. Kathleen asked where Calvin saw her before. 1973, he answered. Kathleen asked if the female being looked the same. No, she was getting older. You could tell. Her hair was getting a little longer. She was dressed up in a jumpsuit this time. But this time, she was crazy. Kathleen asked Calvin what he meant by that, her being crazy. I don't know. She grabbed and threw me on the table and put straps on me. I got to smell that ammonia smell again, and while I was smelling it, I kept hearing something dripping and hit the floor. And it was blood, because I could roll my head around and I could see the blood running out. It was coming from my hand, my right hand on top, and it was burning. God, it was burning bad. Calvin explained that the female either put something in or took something out of his hand, and that's when the burning sensation began. Kathleen keeps Calvin calm and asks him to continue. I was bleeding, and I started getting weak, and I was getting weaker and weaker, and I was thinking, you know, she's going to kill me this time. I don't know why I thought that, but I just did. I had a sense. And then I remember just kind of vaguely passing out seeing the lights. I seen lights like you've heard them explain that when you die you see a light you go into it and I was going into this light and then all of a sudden it's like she reached and grabbed me and pulled me out of the light and I was still tied to this table and then for some reason the straps was off and she stood me up by the wall. Kathleen probes for more details and descriptions for anything around him. Calvin describes seeing the bullet head creature. I seen the one creature that was stood up by the wall the whole time, and he was exactly the same one. It looked like that he'd been there before, and that's it. That's pretty much what I seen there. Calvin says he began to look for a door, an exit of any kind to escape, but he was being handled by the female. She got me off the table and more or less effortlessly picked me up and put me against the wall over there and started pushing my head back and wanted to put her finger in my nose for some reason. And I started bleeding and I was in a lot of pain. I've never felt pain like that. It felt like electricity going all through my body, like electric shocks. And then, for some reason, my adrenaline got stirred up and I seen these little balls of electricity coming for me and I would dodge them, and I would dodge a few of them, but some of them would hit, and it would sting. And that's when I had had enough. So I just grabbed her by the throat and started slamming her head against the wall. 
Kathleen paused Calvin here, probably from shock and awe and pure amazement. She asked a few questions about the balls of electricity and then allowed Calvin to continue. I just grabbed her by the throat and started banging her head against the wall, wanting to get some relief, and I just wanted all this to end. If I could find a door, I was going to jump out of that door and take her with me. If it killed us both, then it killed us. But she started bleeding. Bad. And when she did, she made some kind of mumbling noise again. And it's hard to describe that. Kathleen asked where she was bleeding and what the color of her blood was. Out of her eye. Her ears and her eyes. Calvin said her blood was the color of coal. Coal black. She was bleeding a lot. But I was bleeding a lot too because she had... She had her fingers clawing at my eyes and trying to pull them out. We was both a mess. Calvin says that when the female made the mumbling noise, the creature standing by the wall came and grabbed him by the arm. And just like in 1973, he felt a sting in his arm and was suddenly relaxed. Kathleen asked about the scuffle Calvin had with the being. He told her that the being's neck felt like a human neck. He said that when he was banging her head against the wall... He feels like she may have passed out for a moment. Kathleen asked about the expression on her face and Calvin said it just looked like she was shocked. Kathleen asked if he received any messages from the being while he was with her. My whole life passed in front of me. She, she tried to get me to see all in the future. But Calvin said that there was no future at the end of the message. Kathleen asked Calvin what he saw specifically. I seen a mushroom with bright lights and people's faces melting off. But then I grabbed her and that's when it all stopped. Kathleen takes Calvin back to when the creature was called over to him. It grabbed him, stung his arm, and Calvin was relaxed. Kathleen asked Calvin to tell her what happened next. I woke up on my boat. Kathleen asked how he felt when he woke up in his boat. Terrible. I was in great pain. I was hurt. My hands, my ribs. I was bleeding out of my hands. I want to go home now. Calvin says that once he got home, Waynette asked where he'd been. Under hypnosis, Calvin says he didn't want to talk about anything, told Waynette he just had boat trouble, and went to bed. But if you remember, Calvin's conscious account says that he set Waynette down on the front porch and tried to explain to her that that morning he was fishing, then suddenly looked up, and it was nightfall. Kathleen asked Calvin if he was still bleeding when he got home. Oh yeah, all over. There was blood all over. At this point, Calvin gets very emotional and describes how his and the female being's blood is all over his shirt. The blood was black. He says he then threw the shirt away, Toward the end of the session, Kathleen asked if Calvin thinks the female being is human, to which he replies, no. She asked him if he thinks this woman is a nice being or a horrible being. He said he felt like she was in between, like she was strictly business, just there doing a job. Kathleen asked about the visions Calvin received, if there was any more to them. He said it was the vision of a grim future, and besides people's faces melting off, he saw people starving, 
people starving and dying. Not long after this, Kathleen brings Calvin out from under hypnosis. Now, for the last segment of this episode, I want to go over one more detail surrounding the event that took place in 1973. It involves Charles Hickson as a young boy. According to transcripts of two hypnotic sessions performed by Bud Hopkins on Charlie in 1985 and 1989, Calvin was not the only one who seemingly had beings watching and interacting with him throughout his life. These hypnotic sessions with Charlie reveal that he too had a childhood riddled with various interactions from mysterious beings. The first session with Bud Hopkins was in August of 1985. Charlie is put under hypnosis and is witnessing himself as a young boy. The first incident Charlie describes involves some sort of being coming into Charlie's room as he is asleep. The transcript is rough as there are many times where what Charlie and Bud says is inaudible, but we can tell that Charlie describes the being as being bigger than him with a big head. He mentions that the being grabs him by the legs and subsequently feels pain in his legs. He also says that while this is going on, there is a light shining through his bedroom window. He then says the being flips him over, lifts him up somehow, and takes him out the window. He then describes being inside something. Whether this is a craft or not, we cannot determine. But he describes being inside of something and being laid on a table. He then describes multiple beings, I assume, because of his use of the word they. And these beings are holding him down on the table and doing something to his leg. Charlie then writhes in pain under hypnosis and describes a needle being put in him. Bud asks Charlie if he can describe what the creatures look like. They're grown-ups. They look like me, not big meaning that they are probably the size of a child, but Charlie can tell that they are not children. Charlie also describes feeling a burning sensation or being really hot all over his body, which if you remember, kind of resembles one of Calvin's experiences. Bud then tries to get Charlie to describe the object he was in. Charlie says it was round and big, like some kind of machine, and that it had something on top of it, these are the most significant highlights of this particular session with Charlie. Now let's jump to the session that occurred in October of 1989. Charlie is under hypnosis, and he is telling Bud Hopkins about a particular time when he was about eight or nine years old. He, his brother Howard, and a friend named Pete were playing in the woods at their home in Sandersville, Mississippi. The boys had separated at one point to climb trees, and Charlie tells Bud that he fell 10 or 12 feet from out of the tree and was seemingly knocked unconscious. Howard and Pete were not around. Bud then uses a hypnotic technique that allows Charlie to separate himself from the experience. He allows Charlie to witness the event instead of relive it. Charlie is now watching himself as a little boy and describing the events as they play out. Here it is revealed that the young Charlie did not fall out of a tree. He simply climbed down. 
But before he reaches the ground, someone or something grabs him. Charlie says it looks like a man, but he can't tell. He says the man lays the scared young Charlie on the ground. Charlie says the man pulls young Charlie's pants leg up and inserts something into his upper left leg. Young Charlie screams. At this point, Charlie says that it seems his younger self is dead because he's so quiet and not moving anymore. This may indicate that whatever was being inserted into Charlie's leg caused him to pass out and become incapacitated. Suddenly, Charlie says there are now two beings present. Charlie says that the two beings seem to start taking blood out of the young Charlie's arm and then wave a device over his face. The beings then turn young Charlie over and wave the device up and down his back. The only description Charlie gives of the beings is that they have big eyes. After scanning the child's back, the beings leave and young Charlie begins to move. Charlie says that his younger self gets up and runs back home faster than he's ever seen anyone run before. Charlie says that when his younger self got back home and everyone asked where he was, he just told them that he fell out of a tree and got knocked out. Bud Hopkins now takes Charlie forward in time to the next time he has an unusual encounter with strange beings. This time Charlie is 16 years old. He's on a wagon being pulled by a mule hauling wood. Bud allows Charlie to again observe the event like he's watching a movie. Bud takes Charlie to the start of the incident. Charlie sees something big, round, and gray coming down from the sky toward the wagon. Young Charlie does not see this object. Then, for whatever reason, young Charlie either fell or jumped from the wagon. He is sitting up on the ground, holding his ankle. Suddenly, two beings are on young Charlie. They pull him back to the ground and outstretch his limbs, but instantaneously it seems that young Charlie is again incapacitated. The two beings then insert something under young Charlie's left arm. Charlie says that it looked like it must have hurt. Then Charlie describes the beings taking out whatever they had just pushed in under young Charlie's arm. They're taking blood. That's what they did, Charlie says. Charlie says the two beings then turn young Charlie over onto his stomach and they hover a device over the back of his head and then down the length of his back. The two beings then go back to the craft that came from the sky and they leave. Young Charlie wakes up, brushes himself off, and continues to take the wagon to the barn. Charlie says that his younger self has no idea, no memory whatsoever about what just happened. Young Charlie met with his brother Howard later, and Howard noticed that Charlie's ankle was hurt, so he asked what happened. Charlie told him that he heard it jumping off the wagon, which would be all that Charlie would remember. Bud then has Charlie go back to visualize the two beings so that he can attempt to give some sort of description of them. Charlie says that they have round faces, big gray eyes, a nose that's not like a normal nose you see on a man, and pale skin. He says their arms are small and their hands include a thumb and four long fingers. 
Charlie can't really describe the clothes the beings are wearing. At this point, for whatever reason, Charlie says that one of the beings puts his hand on younger Charlie's head and that the being's hand covers his entire face. The being then seemingly telepathically tells young Charlie, you won't remember anything. Bud now asks Charlie if there was any other time he had ever seen one or both of the beings. Charlie says, I seen him again. Presumably, this means Charlie saw one of the beings after the wagon incident when he was 16. Bud asks if he knows how old he is and where it is when he saw this being, but Charlie doesn't give an answer. He just continues by saying, I seen him through a window. Charlie goes on to say, This is what I've been trying to remember. This is in Pascagoula, Mississippi. We can only assume at this point that Charlie may be talking about his abduction experience in 1973. Charlie describes being on some sort of craft where it is terribly bright inside. This seems consistent so far with the 1973 abduction. Charlie then says that there is a window in front of him, and he sees the same face, the face of the same being he saw as a child. It's almost a smile on it, Charlie says about the face. It's the same face. I think it knows me. Yeah, it's the same one, he says. If you remember back when Charlie was hypnotized by Dr. John Krause, he mentioned seeing what looked like a TV screen. During that session, Charlie was asked if it could have been a window, to which he replied, It could be. This may be what Charlie is describing now to Bud Hopkins. At this point, Charlie begins to show fear or surprise. Bud asks him what is happening and Charlie tells him that he knows where he is now. He is in the craft where three strange creatures took him and Calvin the night of October 11th, 1973 on the bank of the Pascagoula River. Charlie says the face appears in the window again, and he takes in a sharp breath. He says the being is holding up something in front of itself. Bud asks, what is it? One, nine, nine, two, Charlie says. Bud is confused and asks Charlie if the numbers were like numbers that we would write, or were they symbols that look like the numbers one, nine, nine, and two. Charlie says that they look different, but that's what it is. One, nine, nine, two. Bud again asks if they may not be numbers, but symbols that Charlie can't understand or interpret. Charlie says it might be symbols, but that he believes that it is the numbers one, nine, nine, two. Charlie then says the numbers, the being, and the window fade away. Charlie then explains that one of the wrinkled-skinned creatures grabs him and takes him back outside to the riverbank where Calvin is. Not long after this, Charlie is taken out from under hypnosis. Bud talks with him about the numbers and neither one of them can come to a conclusion on what they might be or what they might mean. In fact, the last thing Bud says in the transcript is, so... It's a puzzle. At least it seems that they wanted you to remember it.
All right, I'm kind of going semi-off script here, but um, I just want us to go over what we know so far. Um, I kind of put together a little timeline of, uh, of what we know so far, just as a review and just, just to summarize uh, this episode real quick. So what we know so far is that in 1931, Charlie Hickson is born. Not long after that, in an unknown year, Charlie, uh, he was a child. Um, he describes a being uh, coming into his room. There was a light shining through his window. The being takes him out of the window, um, and something hurts his legs with what he describes as needles. Okay, so uh, maybe a few years later, we don't know, but in 1939 or 1940, Charlie says he's eight or nine years old, and someone grabs him out of a tree that he was, that he was climbing, right? Um, it's, it's about six or seven years later, um, 1947, Charlie is 16, um, and beings examine him again after jumping or falling off a wagon. All right, so a few years later, 1954, Calvin Parker is born. Um, it looks like in 1960, Calvin is uh, about six years old and he sees the lady while sleeping on the floor in his bedroom with his brother. Three years later, 1963, Calvin is nine years old. He and his brother see the lady walking along the fence line. Uh, and then later on that night, supposedly his uh, brother uh, sees a ghost, quote unquote, whispering in Calvin's ear at night while he was asleep. And we, we don't know that for sure because Calvin didn't see anything, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Um, three or four years later, it's 1966 or 67, Calvin is 12 or 13 years old, and Calvin sees the lady again uh, while fishing on the Pearl River. And what's so interesting to note here is that Charlie Hickson is present. He would be around 35 or 36 at that time. Um, so then we only have about seven or eight years later, 1973, both men are abducted. Calvin sees the lady or the female being on the craft. Uh, she shoves her fingers up his nose. Um, and then Calvin sees one of the male beings, um, sees him through a window and it holds up a sign that seemingly says 1992. Um, and what I really want to point out here, and um, we're going to go into it in much more detail in part three, but think about that. Uh, Charlie saw a male being, uh, you know, more than one male beings uh, throughout his childhood and his life. And then Calvin saw a female being throughout his life. And then they uh, both get abducted and see those beings on the same craft. So, I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing to me. I mean, do these aliens know each other? Are they in cahoots? Like, you know, what is going on there? We'll go over all this in, in part three. So, just a few months later, 1974, in January, uh, Charlie has his uh, tree farm incident where he receives a message um, the next month, February, Charlie receives another message outside of his apartment late at night, uh, although he sees no ship. And then in May of that same year, Mother's Day, um, it's the infamous Mother's Day incident. There were five witnesses. Charlie receives another message, and that is um, 
allegedly Charlie's last UFO experience. And then we have the final experience with Calvin in 1993. Um, Calvin is abducted again while fishing. Um, he has an altercation with the female being. He sees a vision of, um, of a grim future, and he also seemingly has a near-death experience. And this is allegedly also Calvin's last UFO experience. Well, this pretty much sums it up for part two of the Pascagoula incident. For part three, I will be going over my own personal conclusions as well as other conclusions and speculations about what really happened to Charlie and Calvin. Also, I'll be reviewing the testimonies of others who may have also been witnesses to Charlie and Calvin's abduction. I also just have more questions in general. Even after reading Calvin and Charlie's books, all the news articles, police reports, documents from various sources, and listening to all the audio from news interviews to the secret tape, I still just wasn't satisfied. So I figured if I wanted more answers, then I would have to go to the source. And so I did. Hey, is this Calvin? Good evening. How you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing great. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay. Um, can you hear me okay? So, be sure to join me again for part three of the Pascagoula Incident right here on Parasensory. Parasensory.